You are listening to Seeking the Hidden Thing with Kryptos. Today you are listening to Why the Administrative State Renders the Idea of Elite Replacement Theory a Non-Starter. One popular idea in dissident rights circles is that what is needed is to oust the existing elites and replace them with a new set of elites. I wish it could work, but unfortunately, it won't. What radicalized you? This is one of the questions that gets asked fairly regularly in dissident rights circles. Everyone here has an origin story. One day you are a card-carrying Republican who reads National Review and talks a lot about the free market and warns people about the dangers of socialism. The next thing you know, you have an anonymous Twitter account, the pictures on your phone are filled with frog memes, and you are a regular listener of Oren McIntyre's YouTube channel. You have jested in contrast to the leftist refrain that real Marxism has never been tried, that real fascism has also never been tried. You are firmly a member of the dissident right, whatever that means in this particular moment. You have been helped along on this journey by ingesting various books like James Burnham's The Suicide of the West, The Managerial Revolution, and The Machiavellians. You found your way to Mencius Moldbug's Unqualified Reservations. You might even try your hand at reading the works of Carl Schmitt. You dig into the past to read older authors like George Sorrell. Sam Francis, Leviathan and its enemies, finds its way into your hands. You probably spent some time dabbling with the intellectual dark web before moving on to real dissident thinkers. You know what NRX is. And at 0x49FA98 means something to you. You dig into the various theories of what is wrong and what can be done. The cathedral is a regular part of your vocabulary. You talk about the exception as a meaningful term. Doomerism is a serious philosophy. You have read the Foundationless Manifesto. In amongst all this dissident right discussion, one idea regularly bandied about is that of elite replacement theory. It is a simple idea, really. As James Burnham pointed out in the Machiavellians, no societies are governed by the people, by a majority. All societies, including societies called democratic, are ruled by a minority. Burnham here is picking up on the idea of the iron law of oligarchy, which argues that all sociological groups from the small community or organization up to the scale of the nation-state are always, regardless of the stated means of legitimizing power, including democracy, run by a small group of elites. Elite replacement theory argues that rather than focusing on winning elections, that what is needed is to replace these oligarchic elites with your own elites. They must be developed and cultivated and made ready for the task. Some argue that replacement happens in regular cycles. One of the corollaries to this is the effort to identify who these elites are and the means by which they network and build the bonds necessary to nurture and sustain power. Family networks, schooling like the Ivy League universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and others. Organizations like the World Economic Forum come under scrutiny. You follow the money. In Canada, they even have a name, the Laurentian Elite. The argument is that we need to identify these people, their networks, and the places where they hold power and pull the strings behind the scenes, and we need to oust them 
and replace them with our own leadership elite. I will not argue that these people and their networks are without power. That would be foolish. They wield tremendous wealth and influence. And while this oligarchy is real, they are not the decisive reality. There is no cabal of Illuminati behind the scenes pulling the strings. That said, this group has situated itself within the decisive reality and are adept at navigating and using it to maintain their position and accumulate the wealth that comes from being the key managers of the decisive power reality. These elites are the technicians who navigate and manipulate the vast network that we call the managerial state. It would seem natural to think that our problem is that these elite technicians of the current system have bad ideas and are wielding this system towards ends which are terrible and undermine the ability of our society to flourish. The thought goes that if we can replace them with our people who have good ideas and thus put the system towards good ends, that this will allow society to once again flourish. Others would argue that if we take away their toys, that is, shut down or vastly scale back or break up the managerial state, that this will reduce their power and allow the people to flourish on their own once the state is off their backs. Or better, we do both at the same time. Unfortunately, both plans are misguided because they fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the managerial state and how its technicians operate within it. It also fails to recognize that the managerial state in its many forms cannot be reformed or controlled. It is fundamentally a creation of liberalism for liberalism. The first mistake is to think of the administrative state like an empty vessel, a neutral entity, empty of content, merely waiting to be filled with the substance of policies by whomever is control of the vessel. This understanding stems from the general view of technology, which thinks of it as neutral. Technology is inert, just waiting for you to use it. What matters is the uses towards which you put it. You can do good things with technology or bad things with technology. It is up to us to choose how to use the tools we have at our disposal. Technology itself is an inert thing merely waiting to be wielded by people towards ends chosen by its operators. This, argues a thinker like Jacques Ellul or a Marshall McLuhan, is a fundamentally mistaken view of technology. Before we look at the nature of technology and how this affects our understanding of the administrative state, we first need to grasp that technology is more than merely the machines, tools, and devices that we use. Technology is fundamentally a way of thinking about the world. Ellul calls this technique. Technique, the technical way of thinking, he argues, looks to take human activities, break them down, abstract them, rationalize them, and then systematize them. The goal is to improve consistency and efficiency, thereby producing repeatable results. The idea is to separate any and every human task or organization from its fallible, variable, organically embedded context in persons, memory, or community, abstracting it out of its particular human context to rationalize it, universalize it, and thus make it portable and reproducible. Then, once the system has been developed, people are then trained and inserted back into the system. 
Technique has been immensely powerful and is responsible for much of the prosperity and success of the modern world. It is everywhere. We see it in the assembly line, in quality control processes, accounting standards, teaching methods, customer service methods, administrative systems, and more. It is used everywhere. It is the idea that drives the policy manual. You can figure out every potential situation and can develop a plan or a procedure to account for it. You can take human variants out of the equation. You don't have to worry about people's intelligence or capabilities as long as you have the right systems and processes in place. Additionally, you can use technology to augment or replace people. The machines often exceed human capacity. Primarily, though, at its heart, technique is a way of thinking, a way to approach problems. This way of thinking, argues Alul, has a number of identifiable characteristics. First, rationality. Technique is always the application of rationality. It is never organic. Any rationally conceived plan, solution, method, approach, system, and so forth is thus technical in nature, regardless of its outward form or its place in the historical progression of technical development. Thus, something like the American constitutional plan, because of its inherent rationality, i.e. it did not emerge organically, a group of men met together and developed the system, a planning committee, is essentially a technique-based solution. Whether this rationality is applied to building rockets, running the government, or growing churches, these approaches are technical in nature. 2. Artificiality. At its heart, Technique is opposed to nature. It is ideological. Technique never emerges naturally or organically. It is always developed and imposed. It is the creation of an artificial system. Technique destroys, eliminates, and subordinates the natural world and makes it impossible to enter into a truly symbiotic relationship with it. 3. Automatism. Technique is always pursuing the one best way to do anything, whether that is a political system or running a Fortune 500 company or testing intelligence or teaching students. There is always a single best way or best practice for everything. If this single best way has not yet been found, the quest is to continually refine existing techniques until it is. The goal of technique is always working to achieve the most efficient way of doing anything. 4. Self-augmentation. Once it reaches a tipping point, which we passed long ago, technique will proliferate almost without human intervention. One technique suggests the next. It becomes the default way to approach every problem, every new situation. Modern man is so absorbed in technique, so convinced of its superiority, that without exception, he is oriented towards technical progress. Technical progress is equated with human progress. 5. Technical progress is non-reversible. What this means is that there is an axiomatic nature to technique. Technique and the technical are seen as a sign of progress. Non-technical means are seen as, at best, quaint, but generally as backward or retrograde. To reject technique is to reject the very idea of human progress. All flaws in technique 
thus must be fixed by new and supposedly better techniques. Six, technical progress is always geometric in nature. As the technical system proliferates, its complexity and sophistication grows exponentially. Thus, the problems which accompany it will also grow exponentially. But because of the abstract, rationalized nature of technique, the whole system becomes increasingly abstract in nature. 7. Monism. The technical phenomenon embraces all the separate techniques in order to form a single, seamless, technical whole. This is a process of self-augmentation, where techniques now depend upon and reinforce other techniques. It is a single grand entity which encompasses much of life and strives to include all things within its purview. Everything must be subjected to technical rationalization and control. In this sense, technique as an ideology is inherently totalitarian in nature. It desires to subordinate all things to its exigencies. More than this, it insists that all thinking be in accords with the demands of technique. Why, this, why is this important for understanding the nature of the administrative state? Just as Carl Schmitt made the argument in the crisis of parliamentary democracy that the parliamentary system of government, governance is based on such ideas as the marketplace of ideas are not content neutral, but are in reality built for and sustained by liberalism, so too, and perhaps more so, the administrative state is built for and sustained by technique. The structures, tools, systems, and policies of the administrative state are artifacts of technique. Almost the entirety of the modern administration is technique-based. An argument could be made that technique is akin to unification theory in physics. Technique is the ideological operating system upon which not just the West runs, but all technological societies. It is the way in which almost every situation and problem is approached. Anywhere where you find an org chart, quality control, a policy manual, or you do things like a SWOT analysis, you are dealing with technique. Whether it is in business, education, nonprofits, churches, and parachurch organizations, and yes, government bureaucracy, they all run using technique in various forms and levels of sophistication. Technique is fundamentally about control, efficiency, and consistent results. It is a society-wide approach to almost every situation and every problem. The administrative regime is everywhere. Once the system has produced a best practice, such as diversity, equity, and inclusion, it quickly becomes ubiquitous. N.S. Lyons, in his recent piece, The China Convergence, also makes the argument that managerialism is fundamentally an ideology with definite characteristics. One, technocratic scientism. This is the belief that everything, including society, can be fully understood and controlled and managed by technical means. They look at the world as a grand machine that can be understood by human reason, abstracted, rationalized, and then engineered to be continually proved. Two, utopianism. The belief that through the application of reason and technique that we can perfect society. This is the idea of progress. That we as a society are moving forward towards a better future. Thus, history itself takes on a moral character. The embrace of the traditional takes on the character of immorality in that it desires what is backwards. 
thus holding back the better future ahead. Three, meliorism. This is the belief that all human problems can be solved through the application of technique. Every problem has a technical solution that can be instantiated through management, policy, and systems. Liberationism. Four, the axiomatic understanding of history with its directionality towards utopia through the means of technique biases thinking towards one of liberating people from past practices, ways of organizing society, customs, habits, and morality. The past must be dispensed with so as to make ready for the better future technological systems will bring us. We must constantly break down the barriers which restrain us from moving forward. 5. Hedonistic Materialism The idea that we can achieve happiness through the fulfillment of material needs and psychological desires. If we have a desire, there must be some solution that can satisfy this desire. Consumption is a moral good. The restraint or repression of desire is a bad thing from which you need liberation. 6. Homogenizing Cosmopolitan Universalism This is the monad applied writ large. All cultural uniqueness and particularity is erased or ignored. Human beings are fungible cogs who can be trained to fit into, operate, and manage the system anywhere, equally, in any place. Move people around where they are needed, as needed. Any forms of localism, particularism, or federalism is inefficient and backwards, an obstacle to progress and thus immoral. The quest is always for the single universal system. Globalism, world government, the multinational corporation are all good things. Economies of scale are desirable in every situation. Every system that is good must be scalable and therefore must be scaled up to include all things. 7. Abstraction and Dematerialization The belief that what is abstract and virtual is more real and better than actual physical reality. Physical reality is messy. Once we are liberated from the demands of the physical, we can remake the world. The world must conform to the system, to the plan, to progress. What we must see when looking at technology in the forms of devices and machines, as well as the nature of management systems, is that none of them are merely inert artifacts. They do not gain their moral intent from how they are used. Managerial techniques and institutions are the products, the artifacts of an ideological framework, a way of thinking about the world that is itself not neutral. The administrative state must be seen as an artifact of the ideological system which produced it. Laying beneath the political doctrines like progressive liberalism and the free market conservatism, or even doctrines like constitutionalism, is that all of them run on the same root operating system, that of technique. Let's say that you're willing to accept this reality, that the world runs on technique. Can't we develop better techniques than the current ones? Isn't part of the problem that the systems are being designed and managed towards terrible ends? Well, there is truth in this, but unfortunately, given the nature of technique, the solution cannot be to replace bad techniques with good techniques. Alul examines this question in his book, The Technological Bluff, making the case that technology is not neutral, nor can techniques be classified as good or bad. The idea that we can replace bad technical systems designed towards bad ends, like the current regime of diversity, equity, and inclusion, with good systems designed towards ends which will help society flourish, 
is fundamentally misguided and misunderstands the nature of technique. Technique is neither neutral, good, nor bad, says Alul. Rather, technique is ambivalent. It does not care. With this, he is able to acknowledge that many techniques, technical systems, processes, policies, machines, oversight regimes, organizational structures, all of it in any way of its forms are often introduced with good intentions. People produce techniques and technologies because they think that by doing so, they are making the world better. But, says Alul, by understanding technique as ambivalent, we are better able to grasp its effects over time. You have been listening to a free preview. To listen to the remainder of this episode and gain access to the full archive of Seeking the Hidden Thing audio and written materials, head over to the main page at seekingthehiddenthing.com and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated.